See if you can find a seat. See if you can finish up your conversations. I, I'm sorry to bust in. We're going to get started. Hello. It's good to see you all. You look so good. Yes. Uh, my name is Janine Hanger. I am going to be bringing um, some thoughts to you today. And um, I'm one of the re resident what, family theologians. They like to call me one of the nerds. I'll own that. That's fine. I'm good with that. Um, so here we go. How many of you love a good mystery or a suspenseful story, right? Like a novel, yeah, or a TV show or a movie. Um, maybe you enjoy the whodunit aspect. I know I love to sit and watch and like try to figure out who's the villain, where's the plot twist, right? Um, now there's two things I've noticed about the anatomy of a mystery. The first thing is that we like closure. It used to be common that you could watch a TV show and it would resolve within the hour. And you could go to bed, and then the next week there'd be another TV show with a new mystery, right? Now they're creating shows that like the whole series is a TV show, right? And so you can't really go to sleep until you've watched the next episode and the next episode. And so it's like the new term binge watch is like, it's like a thing, right? Um, the second thing I've noticed about recent mysteries is that there's a comedic element in them. So if anyone's seen like um, Knives Out or The Glass Onion or Only Murders in the Building, there's like comedy woven into the mystery. Um, but the thing about these two elements, closure and humor, have limits because I think we can agree that there's nothing funny about these mysteries when they happen in our lives, right? Um, everyone likes a mystery till it happens to them and nobody likes a lack of closure. And I think this is actually how the true crime genre came about, right? People no longer want to see crimes unsolved, so they decide we need to find a resolution. Uh, Garrick and I have recently listened with interest to the true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard. It's a podcast about the disappearance and probable murder of Kristen Smart, a college student who back in our college days, uh, not far from where we went to school, went missing. And I remember seeing the big billboards with her face on them on the 101. And so in 2019, a young man from her town picked up this almost cold case asking what happened. We have to find resolution. And his podcast generated so many new clues and leads that it has helped lead to arrests and trials and verdicts. The true crime genre reveals to us how uncomfortable we are with things that are unresolved. And with good reason, right? In the human condition, none of us is okay with injustice and unresolved pain. And so mysteries can be entertaining when we're watching HBO Max on a Saturday night. But the question I want us to grapple with this morning is this. When mystery, when the unknown comes to our lives, what can we do? All of us have unknown futures, right? Maybe you have a huge decision ahead and you have no idea, you cannot get clarity on what to do. Or maybe you're trying to find hope on a very bleak horizon, right? Whether it's a diagnosis or um, a chronic pain or a loss or a broken relationship. Or maybe it's an unknown past. How do I make sense of when that abuse happened or when I was betrayed by my best friend or my spouse? 
We all respond in different ways. Some of us immediately go into fix-it mode, right? We pick up the true crime genre and we're like, all right, we're gonna handle this. We're gonna gather all the information, we're gonna figure it out, we're gonna control it, and then we're gonna resolve it. Like, that's how we operate when we have unknowns. Others of us do the opposite, we completely shut down, right? Um, if I ignore it, maybe it will go away. Uh, or if I cover over it with other distractions, like true crime podcasts or <laughs> HBO Max, right? Or you cover over it with humor, or you cover over it with anxiety or anger, uh, maybe that thing that's unknown won't nag at me. And how much harder it gets when God is added into the mix. We are facing the unknown, and to make matters worse, we can't find God in it anywhere. And that's what we're talking about today, the hiddenness of God in the midst of the unknown. And so there's two questions that we're going to ask. And the first question is, is this, God, are you there? And if so, where can I find you? If you're there, why are you hidden? I mean, it, it brings up all these other questions, right? But God, are you there? And what can we do in the unknown? Um, so as we sit in this unknown, where is God hidden? And how do we know what to do? So these, these last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Esther, and what's so fascinating about this narrative is that there's a lot of unknown in Esther's story, even how it's told. Her story itself raises a lot of questions because of its lack of detail. It's actually made me a little bit frustrated as I've studied it, because there's just not as much detail as I want to have. Um, and along with this unknown in Esther, uh, we've been talking about this in the podcast and the sermons, God's name is not found anywhere in the book. So God seems hidden in Esther's story, just like he sometimes seems hidden in our lives. And so today, as we consider where God is in the unknown of our lives, I hope we can get some ideas from Esther about what we can do and how we can live in these moments. So if you haven't been around, don't worry, I'm going to catch you up to speed. But first, would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge your presence. We thank you that you're here. Uh, though we sometimes cannot find you, we can't sense you or feel you, uh, but you're here. And so we um, invite you into the space, invite you into our hearts as we listen to your word. Would you illuminate the text? Would you give us some new ideas about how we can find you when things are unknown? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the story takes place in exile. The Jews had been exiled uh, to Persia. They've been sent to live 700 miles away from Jerusalem. And at the beginning of the story, we learn about the king of Persia, Xerxes. And in a great show of power, he flaunts his wealth in a huge, lavish party that lasts a very long time. And during these drunken festivals, we get a glimpse into his character where near the end, he sends out a very demeaning request of his wife, Queen Vashti, to come into the party to be gawked at by a bunch of male drunken guests. Well, Vashti says no. <laughs> I kind of like her for that. Um, and this makes the king furious. And so he removes her from her position, right? Except now he's without a queen, so what's he gonna do? He consults his advisors. For as powerful as he is, he can't seem to make a decision on his own. So he consults his advisors and they're like, you know what you ought to do? You ought to round up some girls and pick from among them. So he rounds up young virgin girls who, who could be possible replacements for Vashti. Now, this is not a bachelor reality show situation where 25 lucky bachelorettes get to come for a night with the king and maybe get a rose at the end, right? Like they. And, and they don't get to go home at the end and be like, oh, well, that was a really neat experience and I have some new followers on Twitter. Like, 
That's not the situation, right? Um, these girls are being collected into a harem of hundreds, quite possibly, if not probably, against their wishes. And each girl undergoes a year of preparation before they would have their one night with the king. These are virgins. These are teenagers. This is their first night with an unpredictable, prone to anger, often drunk, power-loving king. And only one girl would be chosen by the king, if she would want to be chosen at this point. Um, those not chosen would not likely get to go home afterward, but they would continue in the king's service, waiting to see if he would call them again. And that's their life. And Esther is one of these girls. Esther is in a Jewish, she's a Jewish exile in a foreign land, and she's an orphan. Her mom and her dad died when she was little, so she was adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And now we learn she's been taken from her home with Mordecai into this harem. And so four years after Vashti is removed, it's Esther's turn to go in for her night with the king. And when she goes in, the text says that Esther earned favor, but specifically that she raises or lifts up hesed in the king. Now, hesed is an unexpected word choice. We often read about God's hesed for us. Hesed has to do with loving kindness, it has to do with devotion and steadfast love. And when this word is used, it's typically the emphasis is on the giver of hesed. Esther is the only character in the Hebrew Bible who is said to raise up hesed, as if she's arousing fidelity in the heart of others. And somehow, Esther manages to raise up the noble sentiment of Hesed from King Xerxes, of all people, an emotionally volatile king and a man she barely knows. So there's something good and winsome and smart about Esther. The narrative says that Esther is very beautiful, but I think her beauty is more than skin deep, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the king chooses her, and Esther becomes queen. Now, all along, Mordecai has been counseling her to keep her Jewishness secret. There's a lot of opinions about why this is. This is one of those things that the narrative doesn't tell us why. Um, one way to think of it, this is one way I've thought about it, is that Mordecai is acting as a parent. It's a mama bear move. And he's saying to her daughter, this is how you stay alive. Keep quiet. Again, I could be wrong. Um, but about five years after Esther becomes queen, the plot thickens, and a conflict arises between her cousin Mordecai and Haman. And these two leaders in the king's service, they represent years of tension between two families, between two people groups. We learned about this last week as Sean uh, kind of introduced us to these two people groups. And when Mordecai refuses to show respect by bowing to Haman, Haman flies into a blind rage about it. And rather than punish Mordecai alone, Haman coordinates the king's approval of an edict to exterminate all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And this genocidal edict is sent out to the far reaches of the empire, and the Jews are devastated, Mordecai most of all. He likely did not anticipate that his actions would have prompted this harsh response. And so now we're up to speed. So if you're following along, we're gonna be in Esther chapter four. It's gonna show up on the screens if you don't have your Bibles, but um, we're gonna go through the whole chapter to, throughout the course of this morning. So starting in verse four, uh, or chapter 4, verse 1, first five verses. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. 
In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Mordecai's grieving, and so he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes. This was a common way of expressing grief in that culture, both within the Jewish culture and outside of the Jewish culture. So this would have been um, noticeable to everyone. And notice how very public he is about his grief. And this is a way of protesting the injustice of this edict. We know something about protesting injustices, right? Like he is protesting the injustice of this edict. And notice Esther's response. It seems like she has no idea what's going on, right? It's not uncommon for those within the palace complex to be oblivious to what's going on outside. And so the text says that she is distressed about Mordecai's grief before even knowing about the edict. And so she sends clothing out to him. And I think what's happening here is Esther wants to see Mordecai, but she's trying to be discreet. Right, Mordecai, if you just put on something acceptable, we can, you can come into the palace and we can meet up and you can tell me what's going on. Mordecai refuses, and so Esther sends out a trusted intermediary. Now, we're going to go back into the passage, verse 6, but notice how Mordecai is going to give Esther a full picture so she can understand how dire the situation is. So pick it up in verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. So, Mordecai shares four things. He shares everything, the whole background of everything that's happened with Haman, right? He shares the exact amount of money, which is a lot, that Haman has invested to see that this is going to come to fruition, so this is going to happen. And then he actually passes on a copy of the actual edict, which I think would be hard to come by. So that tells you something about Mordecai's status. And all of this sets up his final directive that he gives to Esther. He says, Esther... You're going to need to go into the king's presence, and you're going to have to beg for mercy and plead for him, for, for our people. So let's look at Esther's response, verse 10. Then she, Esther, instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So the king would have a very select few of people, few people who could approach him unsummoned. And clearly Esther is not one of these people. Um, and not only that, if anyone approaches the king without being summoned, uh, the king could put them to death on the spot. So Esther's saying, Mordecai, you realize what you're asking here. And the only glimmer of hope that we learn is that he could 
extend the golden scepter. Um, and we might think, well, Esther is beautiful and she's earned the king's favor, right? Um, but Esther is gonna share some insider information. And what she says is, is uh, Mordecai, it's been 30 days since I've been called to go in to see the king. And so we don't really, this is another one, we don't really know what's going on, but her comment indicates that now is not the best time. It's not gonna go well. Um, it's been five years since they've been married. Uh, passions have probably cooled. There's maybe some tension or something. that uh, Esther is probably also, after five years, a pretty good judge of what a volatile king might do. And it appears that she is not sure that if the king is happy with her. And also, let's think about what happened the last time someone did something against the king's wishes. Now think of this reversal. Vashti disobeyed the king's orders and did not come when he called. What would happen when Esther disobeys orders and comes to the king when he does not call? Um, something else to notice is Esther's response to Mordecai. This is the very first time that we see Esther question Mordecai's wisdom. To this point, Esther has nobly honored the only parental figure in her life by doing exactly what Mordecai tells her, right? She is an obedient Jewish girl. And to this point, Mordecai has ordered Esther to stay quiet about her Jewish identity. But now, Mordecai is tell, telling her, do the opposite, Esther. You need to tell him who you are. And Esther is saying to Mordecai, you realize how dangerous this is. Now, some have criticized Esther for this response, and they're like, look, she's afraid. She's being selfish. Right? She's just trying to save her own skin. But let's remember where Esther comes from. She's been abandoned not once, but twice. First, when her parents died, and second, when she was taken from Mordecai's home. Then, as a virgin, she spends her first night with an unpredictable, maniacal king, and he favors her, but does she ever grow to favor him? Doesn't matter how she feels, she becomes his wife. Esther has been a victim in some ways of empire, and she has always been at the mercy of powerful men in her life. She's had little agency throughout her young life. And so I wonder if it even occurred to her that her actions here could make a difference. I think Esther's comment is how she is getting her head around the situation. She is giving Mordecai all the information. Look, I don't think the king's happy with me right now. I don't think it's the right time. And now she's weighing the options. And I think this protest is part of how Esther is figuring out her next move. And really what we're seeing here is Esther starting to find her own voice. She's beginning to more fully step into her role as queen. And so Mordecai comes back to her with a warning, and this is the turning point in the narrative. This is what's going to help Esther decide what to do next. So verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, although God is not mentioned, this, is, this gets really close. Um, Mordecai, seemed that many will interpret this relief coming from another place as being like mentioning God. Um, Esther seems to be expressing faith that God would preserve his people some other way at some other time from using some other people. But if Esther doesn't do something now, she and her family, probably including Mordecai, would perish. 
And then we get to Mordecai's famous words and the high point of the narrative, and who knows that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Let's stop and reflect for a minute. What would you do? Um, Esther is between a rock and a hard place. If she goes into the king's presence, she might die, or she might live. If she doesn't go into the king's presence, they all might die. They all probably will die. Uh, The future is unknown, but there's some really hard decisions ahead. Uh, Like Esther, I think we so often face the unknown, where we don't know what to do. And often our decisions matter a lot for us, but they also matter a lot for other people, right? Because we live interconnected lives. What we do matters to those around us. And I wonder if Esther had forgotten this, because she has been very much alone in the palace, separated from her family, separated from her people. And Mordecai is here reminding her, Esther, your actions matter. You are not alone, and perhaps God has placed you here for this reason. Where is God in Esther's story? He's right there, hidden in Esther's moment, and Mordecai is pointing it out. And Esther's life, I think, so often mirrors our day-to-day lives when we face the unknown. Um, How do we find God in the unknown? Um, I think it was mentioned either in the podcast or a previous sermon that our lives look a lot less like the book of Exodus and our lives look a lot more like the book of Esther. I mean, I'm guessing you don't walk down the street and see a run into a burning bush to make a decision, right? Or like, um, you've not been blinded by a big light that says, I am Jesus, go this way. Like, that doesn't happen to us, right? Um, Our lives look a lot more like Esther. Now, what we do have is pretty great. I mean, think about what we do have today. We can come to a beautiful setting like this and find signs of God, right? There's a cross on the wall. Uh, We can hear uplifting music all around us. We can meet up with friends who remind us of where they're finding God in their lives. We have this Bible that reminds us again and again that God is near. And we have the Holy Spirit who confirms this stuff in our hearts, which way to go. I mean, in many ways, we have more than what Esther had. But despite all this, I think it's still common for us to feel like God is not here. And Esther doesn't get a a blinding light. She probably doesn't have a Hebrew scroll of God's word. And if she did, she probably couldn't read it. Um, And as a secret Jew, she's probably not finding people of common faith among the harem or the eunuchs. Um, She's not getting weekly reminders of God's presence. Esther embodies a life where God is hidden in the unknown, and Mordecai reminds her, Esther, you're not alone, and you have a role to play. So let's look at what she does. It's the last part of the passage, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So Esther calls everyone to fast, which implies fasting and prayer. And notice how Esther has really found her voice as a leader. And so I want to call out a few things. First, notice that she calls for a corporate fast. She is both aligning herself with God's people and she is starting to lead them in a really uncertain time of grief. Everyone is grieving and they're uncertain and she's saying, this is what we're going to do. Everyone is going to fast. We're going to fast and pray for three days. 
Second, notice how, and I've never noticed this before I study this, she and her attendants, I and my attendants are gonna fast. Are these attendants Jewish? Do they even follow Yahweh? Like, think about the leadership exist, exhibited as Esther is introducing some people to the presence of Yahweh, possibly, by her inclusion of them in the fast. And finally, this is the last time that Esther follows a directive from Mordecai. From here on out, starting in verse 17, she is the one giving instruction, and notice how Mordecai is the one following them. And finally, while she may not feel it in the moment, her statement, if I perish, I perish, is a kind of uh, surrender that is going to be heroic. Now, let's look at how Esther answers our two questions that we asked at the start. Remember, the first one we asked is, where is God in the unknown? And Esther gives us the answer. He's with us. Just as we saw Mordecai reminding Esther where God was in her important moment of decision, Esther calling for a fast implies that she believes God is there since she reaches out to him. Now, in the moment, does she know how it will all work out? No. She is still very much in the dark about what God is doing and what God will do. I mean, we have the benefit of seeing the entire story of Esther to see how God clearly orchestrated the details. Right now, okay, spoiler alert. I gotta do it. Esther doesn't die when she goes before the king. <laughs> I think you know that, but... Um, Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm stealing the thunder for next week, but um, Esther, Esther was called and placed in a royal position for just this time, right? Like, we can look at her story and we can see she was called for such a time as this. Um, the difference for us compared to Esther is that our stories are still very much in process, right? I mean, we are very much in a position of having to trust that God is present in the middle of our unknowns working things out. That's hard to do. Uh, when our second daughter was almost one year old, uh, we found out we were pregnant, and we were so happy. And we went to the first doctor appointment, and everything was great, and got almost all the way through the first trimester, went to the second ultrasound appointment. But this time, there was no longer a heartbeat. And we lost that baby. And we were, we were crushed, obviously, as one would be. We were very sad. Um, and for that season, we were living in the unknown, right? Where was God in that loss? What happened, right? Um, now, about four months later, we found out we were pregnant again. And this turned out to be our friend Garrison in the back there, our third now, the reason I tell this story is the timing of it. Um, if we had not experienced this first loss, Garrison would not have been born. Um, this joy did not come without this loss. And I think both of these sit side by side, and it's really hard to puzzle through the whys and, and what happens there. It, it all mixes together in this complicated fashion. Um, I can see how God was present both in the loss and the joy. And now, I have to say, I realize that this is not everyone's story. Um, some people experience loss after loss and are still sitting in incredible pain. But let me remind us, Esther's own story carries its own unresolved loss and pain. I mean, Esther became queen, but what about all the other girls taken into the king's harem who did not? and are now consigned to this life of opulent loneliness. Esther herself had to give up so much 
before she ever got to this position. There's so many losses that you, you just can't account for. And finally, how does Esther's own story end? All we get is one aspect of her life where she is gonna come through in a really important way. But come on, did she live out her days happily ever after with King Xerxes? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know about you, I don't think so. I mean, the sovereignty of God and his providence is an absolute mystery. Add to that free will and a fallen world and flawed people. We're, we're not going to figure out how the pieces all fit together. They don't, in our view. Because sometimes there just isn't a happy ending, and we can't explain why. Why so many families lost loved ones in these recent shootings? Why is there so much injustice, such as what we've seen happen to Tyree Nichols? Some losses are not made right this side of heaven. We only get glimpses, as with Esther's story. But Esther's story reminds us that God is here, and he sees, and he weeps. He mourns over injustice and loss. He's troubled when churches can't get along. He is grieved over violence. He's also here, and he's at work in our mundane decisions and our happy opportunities, right? He's at work in the college acceptances and the job opportunities and the broken dishwashers and the oil changes and the friendships. Like, he's here in all the mundane and the good. Um, God is near, and he is for us. And I don't know if that's something that's hard for you to believe. Whenever we question if he's for us, let's be reminded that Jesus went into Gethsemane pleading with the Father to take away the suffering he was about to step into. Isn't there any other way, Father? There wasn't. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed, abandoned, denied, ridiculed. He knows what it's like to see injustice carried out with no reprieve this side of heaven. And this is why his resurrection is so important, because it gives us hope that this side of heaven is not all there is, and that we're not alone. Esther reminds us that God is with us in the unknown. But he's not just present. Um, our second question that we raised at the beginning, what can we do in the unknown? Esther reminds us that God is here, but also that we can seek him and we can trust that he will meet us. Now, I wanna to return to that three-day fast for a minute. Um, the narrative does not tell us, again, uh, I can tell I'm like frustrated, like I wanna know all the answers to the questions. Um, the narrative does not tell us what happens during this three-day fast, right? All we see is the outcome. Now, the simple outcome is that Esther doesn't die when she approaches the, the king, right? I mean, surely the three-day fast has something to do with that. God was at work. He worked it out that Xerxes must have been in a good mood that day, right? But even more than that, and, and we will see this fleshed out more next week, think about this. Esther needed to have a plan in place for what would happen after she went before the king. Before the fast, Esther displays a courageous level of resolve. If I perish, I perish. After the fast, we're going to see that resolve strengthened. After the fast, Esther is going to put on her royal robes and do what she said she would do. But Esther is arranging her own chess pieces as she shrewdly concocts this plan to preserve the life of her people. And my guess is that her plan came to fruition in the prayer closet. The text doesn't say this, but I think God met her. She comes out very much a woman with a plan. 
And I think this is something that can happen when we seek the Lord in the middle of the unknown. Here's another example. I don't know if you thought of Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he's blinded by the light of Jesus, we learn that this blinding light sends him immediately into a three-day fast where he eats and drinks nothing for three days. And again, we're not told what happens during this three-day fast, but only when he comes out of it and receives his sight, he's baptized right then and there. So before he was blinded, he is breathing out murderous threats against Christians, and three days later, he's a Christian himself. Something happened in that three days, and I got to think God met him in that, right? And for Esther, we're not told, but I wonder if that is where her plan is birthed. And I wonder if that is where she ponders Mordecai's words. And I wonder if she is thinking about all she has lost in her life. And I wonder if she's missing her mom and dad. And if she's telling God, I'm scared again. And I wonder if God met her in that time to give her some ideas, to build up her resolve and her confidence so she could step into her destiny as the queen who is responsible for delivering God's people from extinction. So most of us this week won't be presented with a life and death option to act or be killed, but all of us are going to walk through coming days at some point feeling like we cannot find God. And when we can't find him, what will we do? And I hope you'll remember these two things. First, God is present in your life and he's at work. Even when you can't see him, even when you can't feel him, even when it feels like everything is so completely mundane that there's no room for a holy, loving, good God who's at work. He is there. He is here. And number two, you can reach out to him and he'll meet you. And it probably won't be with bright lights or fire, but it very well could be in the prayer closet and in the mundane moments, and in the still small whispers, and in the simple light bulb ideas, God is hidden in the unknown, and all we have to do is seek him. Would you pray with me? God, you see every person here, and every person here represents a story where you're at work, and we thank you for what you're weaving in us and through us because our lives are interconnected with each other. Thank you that we can seek you, and sometimes, boy, we can't find you. But God, would you give us the courage to reach out to you when we are stuck, when we don't know what to do, when we feel like there's a bleak horizon and we can't get our head around, how do I get through the next step or the next step or the next step? Would you just meet us in those moments? Would you encourage us as we reach out to you? Would you meet us and give us ideas and texts from friends and remembering something from scripture, some, some kind of uh, sign that you are moving because you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are working all things out for your glory, even the hard stuff. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand together?